You're listening to the Mind Manual Podcast, Episode 26, Transforming Our Acts of Duty into Acts of Love. If you want a particular result in your life, but you're unable to get it, tune in to start training your brain and expanding your emotional intelligence to unlock the most powerful and underutilized performance tool that we have. It's the most important work you could do because... It affects every area of your life. Hi everyone, hope you are well and happy. Today's session comes to you inspired from a client's coaching session and the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Aurelius was the Roman emperor from 161 to 180 AD and a Stoic philosopher. It was a Stoic custom followed by Marcus throughout his meditations to describe the goal of life as living in accord with nature. There was nature in the macro sense, at large with a capital N, and there is nature in the micro sense with a small n as it relates to our own human nature. He contended they lead to the same place, since universal nature is rational and ordered, and since the core of human nature is also rational and ordered. It then follows that living in accord with human nature is at the same time living in accord with nature at large. When you observe, understand and live by this proposition, then nature and nature, the macro and the micro, the little n and the big n, will dictate the appropriate stepping stones to virtue and happiness. What makes an act virtuous is just whether it is in accord with nature. The interpretation he makes in defining what that nature is in relation to mankind, according to Stoicism, is that we have an innate tendency for self-preservation, but also in preserving and looking out for others. At its most basic and instinctual, we have the example of a mother and the way she takes care of her offspring. We are also social creatures and we are all kin. So it's going to be natural and beneficial for us to do good to others like us and to serve one another. So Marcus repeatedly stresses other virtues such as kindness, leniency and benevolence. It therefore follows that all the virtues arise out of a natural human tendency, which means we are inherently good, which is great to know. So why are there so many bad people in the world? He believes that they never grow out of the infantile trap of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. I guess our beginnings of life are going to be guided initially by our default instinctual drivers, which come from our primitive or primal brain that is primarily concerned with survival. The motivational triad helps us to explain what motivates this part of our brain, and that is it simply wants to avoid pain, seek pleasure, and conserve energy. When we don't grow beyond these primal instincts and we don't override it with our higher thinking brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, then we become a slave to these instinctual desires and urges. The other thing about our primal brain is that it tends to focus on the short term over the long term. This survival function will predominantly be preoccupied with the near and present danger. 
Given that it doesn't have access to the higher reasoning and logic ability, it will bypass the long-term forecasting and predictive analysis that are needed to prioritise activities of the long-term over the short-term for the good of ourselves and others. When you operate from this level, it's still in accordance with human nature in terms of self-preservation, but it's the time scale that's out of whack. It's prioritising survival of today in this moment over survival a bit further down the track. So although it's a natural human tendency to want what is good for ourselves, most people mistakenly think that what is good for themselves is pleasure, which ultimately leads them to non-virtuous behaviour. So they ultimately assent to the wrong proposition. For example, using alcohol to escape pain and move towards pleasure might feel like the right thing to do in the moment according to human nature, but the long-term consequences of that may lead to a dysfunctioning person who is unable to parent or provide guidance to their child or might even bring physical or emotional harm to them. This will go against nature, thereby making it non-virtuous. The challenge then is to be aware to the workings and motivations of the primal brain and to be consciously overriding them with our higher rational thinking brain and choosing long-term benefits over moments of short-term pleasure hits. Pleasure in itself is neither good or bad. It's not a moral subject, but it leads to long-term negative consequences that goes against the tendencies of human nature. And then I suppose in that sense, it can be defined as non-virtuous. So the pleasure of a sweet treat is neither good or bad in itself. Food is not a moral issue, but if it becomes a regular routine ritual leading to diabetes over the long term, then it becomes non-virtuous. So time and repetition are going to be important factors that can change something from being indifferent as neither good or bad to it being non-virtuous that isn't in alignment with nature and therefore diverting us from the path of happiness. The work then becomes the conscious training of the higher thinking brain to override the instinctual survival brain amazingly none of us are really exposed to this type of training during our lifetime certainly not in a formal sense we may stumble across a book but by the time we're desperately needing it in our lives we then have to go and unlearn a whole lifetime of thinking and feeling patterns that have become deeply embedded into our brain and cellular memory it becomes a disorientating process when you learn that the world is actually not the way you perceived it to be all this time. And that's if you can see through to the illusion in the first instance. Seeing it as one thing, then there's the ability to apply it and deconstruct every pattern, belief and memory that you have ever believed to be true. That's a process in unravelling all of it piece by piece. This is where coaching comes in. For those who have never experienced what it's like to do some mind coaching, it's where we take all of these constructs of the mind, such as our thoughts and beliefs, and we rigorously examine them. We identify the well-established patterns that keep you locked into your way of being, and we ever so gently go about disproving them and appealing to the higher brain to logically and rationally declare them 
as being untrue and redundant. All of this wisdom will come from you. When we present the right questions, your brain will go and search for the right answer that feels true for you. There is no advice or opinion or judgment. It is an intellectual realization or epiphany that is revealed by your own mind and it will blow your mind, so to speak. You will find that it was there all along. You just never gave it the attention or focus. So once the illusion has been shattered, we then go and reconstruct a new model of the world that is equally true and believable for you, but one that actually produces the results you want. This is all still an intellectual process, but it becomes the new blueprint from which to plan some practical ways you can then implement it into your life. It's a truly fascinating process that will leave you in awe when you start to unlock this potential that we all have in creating a life by design once you break through the beliefs that hold us back. So that's coaching in a nutshell, if you didn't know. It's very future-focused and fun to go and play around with these mental constructs that we thought were like concrete, rigid and unbending, but then you realise it's all so fluid and flexible and so fun to play around with. I could stay absorbed in a philosophical conversation with someone for hours. It never ceases to amaze me. Another application of this topic I'd like to discuss relates to a client I was coaching the other day. It might appear to be a trivial thing, but when you think about it in the concepts I presented here, it actually becomes really big, life-changing stuff. So I'll give you the scenario. Husband comes home from being two weeks away and wife presents him with a statement that goes along the lines of, you know, there's a fair bit involved in feeding and walking your dog for the two weeks that you're away. So first up, we realise that the conversation is really a complaint. What she's feeling is resentful. What she's wanting is acknowledgement and thanks. What he gives her is an attempt to close it all down by saying, no, it's not. I question why she had declared that the pet the family lived with was her husband's dog, and that was because she didn't want it. When I asked why she didn't want it, it came down to the extra work that was involved and the obligation to be doing things all the time with it because it looked sad when she didn't, which made her feel bad. So the way she was looking at the family dog was the reason she didn't want it in the first place. So let's look at that perception and where she was coming from. When you apply this concept of nature to it, we know that nature of the primal brain is to conserve energy. So that explains the complaint about the extra work involved. The higher thinking brain could then override this by dismissing the need to conserve energy in this day and age where we have an abundance of food and present the benefits of regular exercise and the opportunity for the family to live with, careful and experience love for a dog. But because the higher brain wasn't able to override the primal brain in this situation, her experience of having this dog became one of duty and obligation. This required her to be thanked for carrying out the duty of keeping the family dog alive while her husband was away. Now, I want you to compare the feeling of duty and obligation to an alternative experience that you could have 
when you align with nature itself and human nature as it relates to the longer term time scale. So essentially involving our higher thinking brain. So if you were to associate the dog with it being an object of nature to love and to experience your life with, you start to align with our natural tendency to care for, to nurture and to be of service. The resulting benefit of this for ourselves is to experience the feeling of love in living with nature, in teaching children the responsibilities of caring for another living creature and enjoying the benefits of regular exercise. When you come from this place, which is a much nicer, more aligned place to come from, the furthest thing from our mind will be the need to be thanked by another for keeping the dog alive for two weeks. You can see when you rely on the instincts of our primal brain and prioritise these over the longer-term benefits of the higher-thinking brain, you end up with two very different experiences of exactly the same situation or circumstance. One is born out of duty and obligation and the other out of love and the joy you derive from nature. The latter are the stepping stones to happiness, as the Stoics would say, the former to resentment and suffering. When you do something out of duty and obligation, there is an implied sense of reward that you need from it in the form of thanks and appreciation. When you do something out of love, there is no sense of reward or thanks needed. Being involved in the act itself to experience that feeling of love is the reward itself. Same situation, two very different experiences. And if you were to go on further from that conversation or complaint to see where it leads. It's a story of disconnection and pain. It doesn't lead to anywhere good. Now, we could come up with a hundred other ways this shows up in our lives when we allow our primal brain to rule the day. Let's take a look at the obesity epidemic, for example. This will predominantly be a cycle of moving away from pain usually the emotional pain and discomfort of negative feelings and towards the pleasure hit that we get from food. Food is a fast, convenient and easy way to delight ourselves with a treat of some kind. But it never lasts for long and it never solves the underlying pain that we're trying to avoid and distract ourselves from. So the cycle stays in perpetual motion as the pounds pile on. It's the same for anything that follows the same cycle where we seek a reward in exchange for the pain, which inevitably leads to addiction, whether that's trading boredom for the reward of approval through social media or overworking to achieve more in that area of your life so that you can avoid a difficult situation at home. The same can be said for over-drinking, over-shopping, gambling, drugs, Basically, anything that can give you a temporary hit of pleasure to distract ourselves from the feeling of pain of a negative emotion. The other primal tendency is to conserve energy and activate the fear response whenever it perceives our survival is put into question. So if you're wondering why you have the tendency to procrastinate or couch surf instead of doing the thing that you know you should get done, 
You know you've handed the reins over to your primal brain that will convince you that it's a much better idea to sit on the fence or sofa instead of getting on with your life. It will usually go and exaggerate the amount of effort involved or shrink away from making any decision that might take you out of your comfort corner so that you can stay safe in your cave. Anytime you find yourself in fear about something, it will most likely be your primal brain trying to convince you that you're going to die. This often happens on a subconscious level without our awareness, but we nevertheless still feel the panic and the fear that is associated with those thoughts. You have a think about it. Whenever you feel pangs of hunger, if you don't give into them, we carry on as if we're going to die if we don't get food into us right now. Or whenever we have to stand up in front of the pack and face them to speak publicly, we have this overwhelming fear that sweeps over us as if we're going to die again. For a lot of people, they would rather die, including me. When you find yourself acting out in anger, check to see if your primal brain has sent you in to either protect or defend the identity and survival of your ego. So many of our behaviours that result in a negative outcome will be driven from this base primal function that ultimately doesn't serve us so well anymore. It does if we're about to walk out onto a busy road in front of a car, but for the most part, it's bringing us undone and sabotaging the show when we leave it to its own devices. We need to start activating and overriding the situation with our higher thinking brain and using this big nature versus little nature framework to assess the proposition before us, whatever that is, and let that be our guide to the path to happiness. This will involve calling out all of the protests and pleas that the primal brain will offer you and watch out. They're sneaky and convincing and will have you bluffed in no time at all. It will sound as if you're just pointing out the facts. But if you stop to really listen to them, you will find them really quite farcical. Whenever you go to challenge them with your higher brain, they will start to sound like the ravings of a crazy person if you listen on as a quiet, objective observer. The thing is we never question them or give any time to really see through to the lies that this internal voice of our primal brain is telling us. So after you've laughed a bit and called it all out, the next step is to find all the ways the longer-term path will lead to a happier, more fulfilling life. In prioritising the long-term over the instantaneous pleasure hit, in feeling and processing the pain of your emotions instead of resisting, avoiding and distracting yourself or in doing the thing instead of conserving energy. We know how to apply all of this when it comes to some things. For example, taking a shot of heroin. It's completely off the table for me because I know where it leads and it's definitely not the path to happiness. I hear it's an unreal high when you're on it, but nothing could convince me to go down that path because I really don't want to go where it will take me. Many other things, though, won't seem so blaringly obvious as that because many of them 
have become socially acceptable. For example, we don't go and ask our friend, why are they overeating so much or constantly on their phone scrolling through social media? But the long-term consequences of those will also rob us. They'll rob us of our physical health. Or they'll steal our dreams away because we've devoted all this time on the socials instead of working on our dreams. But how many seconds does our higher brain spend on showing all of this to our lower brain? If we were to use the nature model in this decision-making process, it would clearly show up as a red flag in it not being in our best interests or in alignment with what we really want for our lives down the track. Here's a question I want to leave with you to ponder. How would your life be different if you prioritised your higher brain and honoured your commitments, followed your dreams and honoured your plans? If the long-term benefit of a particular action leads to a higher serving outcome as opposed to the instant gratification that we usually prioritise, then our higher brain needs to go in and trump our primal brain with logic and reason, but also it needs to deactivate the fear response of the primal brain. Think of your primitive brain as a tantruming toddler wielding a knife. It will try and trick you with all the reasons, justifications and excuses for needing to get its own way It will produce a performance that will seemingly come down to a life or death decision, just like the toddler who's been told no at the lolly store. Our adult higher brain needs to go in and supervise it at all times. So this is the work, my friends. Initially, it will be difficult to see the wood for the trees, but that's where the coaching can help you to empty all your thoughts and beliefs out so that we can really see them for what they are. It's not scary. You can actually have a lot of fun with it. So I hope that's helped you to see what might be lurking beneath the surface of all those seemingly innocent thoughts. If you're up for a bit of fun, I'd love to see you over in Mind Scholars where we can play around with it all. You can have a look at what we do there by going to themindmanual.com forward slash join. Have a beautiful week, everyone, and talk to you soon.